So we're looking at Romans chapter 8 today, our epistle lesson. And the title for our lesson is Rank Hath Its Privilege. Some of you may be familiar with what that means. But this is an age-old saying that I often heard in my 20 years as an active duty army chaplain. Rank hath its privilege. Simply put, it meant that the higher your rank, whether it was as an enlisted soldier or as an officer, simply put, it meant that the better you lived, the more benefits you accrued to yourself by the rank that you enjoyed. In Iraq, it meant that I got my own hooch, that is, my own room to live in. Kind of nice, as did the command sergeant major. And all the lower-ranking lieutenants bunked together. My chaplain assistant bunked together with the other enlisted. Frankly, the young lieutenants didn't want the chaplain bunking with them anyhow because then they'd have to behave. But that's for another day. Anyhow, how does this idea have anything to do with our epistle text from Romans here today? Well, before our text in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, Paul has done a superb job of describing how we have what I call a new status or a new rank, if you will, in Christ. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us in his righteous life. And we are now set free from the law and its condemnation. For those who have faith in Christ and are baptized, our elevated new rank as believers and children of the living God. That is our new rank, if you will. No analogy, folks, is perfect. I got that. Our privilege is that of a child of God with all the blessings accrued for us by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross to include adoption as God's child, forgiveness, eternal life, and the certain hope of heaven, and eternal life in heaven. In view of this, Paul urges new Christians to not fall back into their sins and old life. Quite frankly put, to fall away from Christ, if you will, or at least fall into some serious sins. Paul illustrates this for the new Christians in terms of prices owed and prices paid. To wit, we are all happy when we finally get a school loan or a car or a house mortgage paid off. That is a great occasion for us in our lives. It's such a relief to not be under the crushing financial burden of that payment that comes due each month. Paul seizes that imagery of paying off a loan, paying off a debt, to remind his readers of how relieved they were when they became new Christians because the debt for their sins had been lifted off their backs by the blood of Christ shed for them on that cross. Paul then reminds them of this because there is a, a subtle deception whereby Satan tries to knock us off our feet, if you will, by tempting us to think that maybe the matter for our sins is not really settled, or so he would like us to think. Or perhaps Satan threatens to ruin us by finding a way to embarrass us, to, to punish us or penalize us and reveal those sins of our prior lives that continue to haunt us in our consciences. Now remember, Rome was probably one of the greatest centers, if you will, of idolatry and immorality, plagued by all sorts of licentiousness, hedonism, sexual immorality, much like, sorry to say, the USA is becoming today. That was what was going on in Rome. Much like us, 
as evidenced by the abortionist, the LGBTQ movement, the transgender, and any movement that flaunts a sin. These and all sins are described by the Greek word sarx in our text, which is translated in the English as the flesh. And in the days of Jesus, Rome had reached a new low. Temptation was ripe in Rome, lurking around each corner, waiting for these young Christians. Eat, drink, and be merry, because you only go around once in life, right? Grab all the gusto you can get. Some of us remember that commercial. Then and today, the pleasure of sin and its pull to return us to the ways of our former life can be, at times, incredibly strong. Especially the pull of drugs, covetousness, a sexual sin. But Paul's message is to remind these new Christians in Rome to not let themselves be lured into the sins of their past or the sins of society and possible destruction of their faith by what they left behind in their previous life. You see, then, like today, they were being pulled once again by their past, by friends, by former leaders, by former members, all trying to pull them back. They were being pressured to follow the crowd, to be politically correct, to conform themselves to the norms of society, pitched by the networks and the mainstream media, to be told they were born that way by God, and they could not change whatever sin you want to fill in the blank for. Society tells us this is what you should believe and do. Don't speak of God's morality in the public square. Don't complain when we teach our beliefs to your children in your public schools. Secular society tells us, you owe us your allegiance. After all, you have enjoyed the benefits of our economy. They don't see it as a blessing from God. You have enjoyed the benefits of our freedom. You have enjoyed the benefits of our American culture. But this is all a deception of Satan, who also lied to Jesus when he said, all this, the kingdoms of the earth, shall be yours if you'll bow down to me. Never mind the fact that it is God that owns the kingdoms of the earth and the earth itself. In, mil in the military today, we actually had to establish, during my time in, moral leadership training courses. About halfway through it, I was, went in in 95 and I retired in 2015. We had to establish courses on morals to teach the soldiers because of what was happening in society. We tell our soldiers constantly to do the right thing. We tell our officers and our non-commissioned officers to lead from the front and by example. Of course, this needed to be reinforced, but it often ended up as a request for behavioral compliance or moral effort, and that's good, folks, don't get me wrong here, to conquer some sin. No grace, no help from the Holy Spirit, no help from God required. Do it under your own power. Like the military and some quarters of our civilian world today, Paul speaks to the Roman Christians in what might be at first seem like like manner and tells them to do the right thing before God because they were, however, bought out of sin with a price. So in pursuit of spiritual peace and meaning for our lives, is Paul saying these are our only two choices also? to find our happiness either by buying into the pleasure of our days or to find spiritual peace by living a, a rigidly moral, upright, disciplined life? 
by abiding by some man-made code under the strength of our own moral efforts? Is that what our text says? As do the Islamists, the Mormons, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And in this we will find our hope. Is that our message here? Truth be known, what Paul says in our text is not said in a demanding way as much as an encouraging way. He's exhorting us. This is seen in that he reminds the Romans of their calling through the gospel and of their status in Christ Jesus their Lord. He ties this into what he is talking about. Paul does not rely on the motivations of pleasure or fear or legalism. But Paul is here encouraging them in their walk in the faith. He's reminding them of their treasured status as Christians. It seems to me that Paul is addressing sins of weakness to these Roman Christians, and he knows they need the comfort of the gospel and encouragement to regroup and reground themselves in the gospel, in the word of God. This is so often the struggle we saw as missionaries sent off to share the gospel around the globe. I remember the rainy season in the village of Bumban among the Limba people of northern Sierra Leone. And one year the rains came too heavy. We have problems in Minnesota right now with droughts. But for them it was too much rain. And it threatened to destroy the newly planted rice crop. There was a nominal Christian presence there, but in their time of need, they abandoned even that, and they turned to the local witch doctor to manufacture a charm and have it blessed, and then they hung it over a bridge where the water was flowing underneath and into the rice paddies and washing away their food for the next year. I don't recall that it worked, and I wonder to this day how those few Christians of Christian persuasion dealt with the guilt of their faithlessness when the magic of their traditional religion didn't help. We may think that we are past that sort of behavior, but then an old sin resurfaces in our lives. Somebody from our misspent past resurfaces only to dredge up memories and trouble us. Guilt nags at us. Consequences of a poor decision can derail us. Temptation overtakes us. And we begin to see that we aren't so different from the early Christians in Rome. And then suddenly, suddenly, the gospel in our epistle begins to stand out. And it speaks to our hearts. We owe nothing to those people or those ways and places of our perhaps poorly lived past. To say that we are not debtors to the flesh in our text is to understand Paul's words here as gospel which is to say, we owe Satan nothing. Better yet, we owe God nothing for his love and grace. We don't have to pay God off to get his forgiveness. Jesus paid the debt of sin through his death. Thus to say with Paul that, quote, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live, is to understand these words not as a moral lecture on the need to strive harder in our life of sanctification, although we should work at our life of sanctification. But this exhortation by Paul is rather an encouragement to live daily in repentance and faith and to live in the gospel. 
A faith which enjoys freedom from guilt because we have by grace the forgiveness of our sins. The gospel in this pericope of Paul continues to bleed out in these words. For as many, or all, if you will, depends on the translation, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The words, as many or all, are a reminder to this likely predominantly Gentile assembly of new Christians that they are among those now led by the Spirit. And it's not just the young Jewish Christians either. These Gentiles are now sons of the true God and need not fear the false pagan religions of their past. They are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit who will sustain them in their faith because God has called them to the word and sacraments. And he has stamped their adoption papers in baptism. They just need to stay in the word, look down the road ahead in faith with their eyes focused on the cross and on their final hope and on the gospel. It's like coming off of a patrol at night in Iraq. You've been on the edge the entire night hoping for one more quiet night outside the wire. It was a long night. As dawn approached, you'd head for the gate of the forward operating base. We called it the FOB. You could see the lights of the guard shack and the soldiers waiting for you to open the gate as you came towards them. This, after a long night out in Tamin or Ramadi, was a very welcome sight. It was a sight for sore eyes. It was time to get somewhere where you could let your guard down. You could rest and re-energize. A reward after a sometimes stressful patrol. On the FOB, you could enjoy a type of safety that many outside the wire couldn't. It was your privilege due to your status, a type of rank, if you will, as an American soldier in a foreign country. But you could not forget those outside the wire that you were sent to serve. You could not just enjoy living more safely and comfortably than they in your time off. Your mission was to bring safety and security to them, to their families, to their communities, and to their countries. Paul speaks to the Romans then and us today and is saying, we, we should enjoy our rank, our status as children of God. We should hold God's word in our hearts and hold our certain hope of our promised eternal reward. But we also must not forget the Great Commission and those whom God has sent us to serve. We must hold dear our Lord's wishes and desire that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. One way to do this is through the work of Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Lutheran Heritage Foundation, we call it LHF, brings the gospel to others through our books. We call them Bible books. We produce Bible books like Luther's Small Catechism, with and without explanation, a child's garden of Bible stories, the Book of Concord, and many, many more titles besides those three. To date, we have translated classic Lutheran books over the last 31 years in about 150 languages in almost 100 countries. These books are for lay people. They're for pastors, churches, and seminaries. These books are gospel-focused, reformation-driven, and they bring the gospel to people 
in their heart language as these books teach people from the Word of God. The pearl of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is not hidden in these books, but it is taught and made clear in and through these books. They teach others who don't know Jesus yet or about the great merchant, our Heavenly Father, who sold all that he had, gave up his most precious son to die for us on the cross. They teach that to these people who receive them so that they too may be ranked among those who are the saved. Won't you join us in this work? Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses only our human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the true faith to life eternal. Amen.